Welcome to Bugle Call Radio, the podcast all about swing. Hello and welcome back. This is Karin speaking. Thank you very much for joining me on the second episode of my little swing podcast. I'm very flattered and super, super happy that the first episode of the podcast was so well received and it was listened to almost 400 times within a week. I did not expect that and I'm very happy. And special thanks also to everybody who gave me feedback and some motivating and uplifting words. This pushed me to produce this next episode as soon as possible and I hope you will like it as you liked the first one. Again, please comment and share your thoughts diligently with me so I know if you maybe have wishes on a special topic or a song or a person, whatever, tell me and I'm glad to talk to you about everything and also get to know you better. For this, you can leave me a comment on my homepage www.buglecallradio.wordpress.com or you can follow me on Instagram at buglecallradio. This second episode turned out a bit different from the first one, to be honest, and also different from what I have initially planned. Because at first I chose to talk about a special song again, as I did before. But when I started to research, the topic was suddenly so super widespread and it would not have been satisfying to just tell a few short stories about that one particular song. I don't want to tell you which song I chose at first because it would anticipate too much and ruin the suspense a bit. Let's get started with this episode and travel back in time into a city that is bursting with jazz music. We are in the jazz paradise of the 20s and early 30s. Around the rest of the country, prohibition effectively ended the activity of traditional nightclubs and dance halls. But not here. Nightlife, gambling, corruption and illegality is flourishing. And so is jazz. Dozens of dance halls, clubs and cabarets in the city give jazz music the perfect environment to thrive. And we owe it all to Tom Pendergast, or Boss Tom, as he's called in town. He controls the police, the politics, and essentially the entire town. So liquor flows freely, gambling and prostitution permeates the night scene. Because of the flourishing nightlife, world-class jazz players come from all over the country and make this city their home. I tell you. New Orleans might be the cradle of jazz, but America's music grew up in Kansas City. From 1920 
1920 until 1933, the United States issued a nationwide constitutional ban on the production, importation and sale of alcoholic beverages. With these measures, they hoped to cure many of society's ills they blamed on alcohol, like, for example, murder or crime in general. But also it should stop husbands from spending all of their income on alcohol so there was nothing left to feed the family. There was a bunch of reasons why the temperance movement, who cooked the whole prohibition up eventually, wanted to forbid alcohol. Prohibition was for sure hard times for night olds all over the country. However, we all know the fact that something is forbidden does not mean that everyone abides by the rules. Alcohol consumption was for example allowed if it was prescribed by a doctor. Needless to say, large numbers of new prescriptions were written for alcohol suddenly. But not everybody knew such a good doctor. There was still plenty of other ways to get some drinks during Prohibition. This is where organized crime comes in. Gangsters noticed the high demand on alcohol and saw a profit. They would smuggle rum from the Caribbean or whiskey from Canada and sell it in their secret bars, the speakeasies. In Kansas City, it was Thomas Joseph Pendergast who controlled the city as a political boss from 1925 until the end of the 30s. And due to his corrupt political machine, prohibition laws in Kansas City were kept at bay for a long time. Missouri was the second to last state to pass the prohibition laws. And even when prohibition hit the city, nothing really changed. Pendergast maintained good relations with the police, criminals and the City Hall of Kansas City, so he could keep the speakeasies flourishing. Because he was involved in operations at the black market, it was in his personal interest that drinking remained allowed. So he also made sure no one enforced the laws regulating closing times and allowed speakeasies to stay open all night. A band called Benny Moten Orchestra formed in 1922 and became Kansas City's first great jazz band and the most important of the itinerant blues-based orchestras active in the Midwest in the 1920s. Their leader was jazz pianist Benny Moten, a born and raised Kansas City boy. Their early songs were, by strict musical standards, unrefined and not much removed from existing blues music. But the Benny Moten Orchestra would soon build upon its earliest recordings to develop a distinct Kansas City style of jazz. So let's see how this band influenced that jazz style that later dominated the jazz scene in the late 1930s and 1940s. Benny Moten and other early band leaders incorporated the blues into their repertoire, creating an orchestral expression of the blues. Let's listen to their very first recordings from September 1923 at the OK Recording Company, where Benny Moten Orchestra was the very first band from Kansas City that made phonograph recordings of its tunes. The songs were an early form of jazz that really just added additional beats to blues songs, like we can hear in the song Elephants Wobble.
this recording is considered to be the first recording of Kansas City style of jazz, you can hear it was still typical interpretations of the New Orleans style, like of King Oliver for example. And they also showed the influence of the ragtime that was still popular in the area at that time. Benny Moten's orchestra switched from the OK label to the Victor label and the recordings from then on were rather influenced by the more sophisticated orchestral style of Fletcher Henderson but more often than not still featured a hard stomp beat that was extremely popular back then. It was also reflected in the song's titles like here in Thick Lip Stomp. hard. The 11-piece band toured the Midwest and East Coast in 1928, playing the same venues as the white bands in the Victor schedule. And the band ended the tour with engagements at two of the greatest venues in Harlem, New York, Lafayette Theater and Savoy Ballroom. The dancers in Harlem loved the band's stomp down style, because the stomp was different from Fletcher Henderson, Duke Ellington and other New York bands. But ironically, Moten began to move the band to a smoother, highly orchestrated style modeled after the East Coast bands. Right from the start, the band leader had figured out a chance against Chick Webb, Henderson and the big bands and pursued the goal of making his orchestra just as successful as theirs. And the band was continuously growing, starting with a size of six members in 1922, the band had grown to 11 members five years later. But this was still not the end of the story. Evil Mouth claimed that from a certain point on, Benny Moten expanded his band by picking musicians from the famous Blue Devils because Moten lacked some get-off soloists and strong vocalists. In many sources you can read that he stole guitar player Eddie Durham, trumpet player Hot Lips Page, bass player Walter Page, 
the singer Jimmy Rushing, and most important in this case, none other than William Basie, better known as Count Basie. But we will get to that later, why he was so important. I couldn't find out anything specific about Eddie Durham's transfer from the Blue Devils to the Benny Moten Orchestra, but the fact is that he was already working there as an arranger for Benny Moten when Count Basie joined the band. At least that's how Basie tells it in his autobiography. Basie chose to leave the Devils himself and return from Oklahoma to Kansas City to accompany the silent movies on the organ at the Ablin Cinema, where he had already worked during his previous stay in Kansas City. The longer he was in town, the more he heard about this notorious band around Benny Moten and one day he decided to smuggle himself in there somehow. Just somehow, he just wanted to be part of the band, doesn't matter how. He actually always did it like this. When he liked the band, he heard a band, he liked them, he wanted to play there. And then he tried out a way to get in there. Long story short, Basie became good friends with Eddie Durham, arranged some songs with him and Benny Moten liked it, so he decided Basie should keep on working with Durham. On a tour to Wichita during some gigs Benny Moten needed a break to do some businesses in between. Yeah, as a band leader he also had other tasks and he chose to do them while the band was playing. And so Count Basie had more and more often the opportunity to sit at the piano and replace Moten. So this is how Count Basie smuggled himself to become the second pianist of the Benny Moten Orchestra. Mission accomplished. Just a few more sentences until we get to listen to some music again, okay? So, Eddie Durham and Count Basie, as they both have been members of the Blue Devils, had a very clear idea of what the band should sound like, in their opinion. And so they persuaded Benny Moten to first recruit the singer Jimmy Rushing from the Blue Devils. The next one to change sides was then Hot Lips Page on trumpet and after a while even the former leader of the Blue Devils, Walter Page, replaced the tuba player Vernon Page with his bass. So the composition of the band changed a lot between 1930 and 1932 as not only new members joined but also others were replaced such as Vernon Page as I just told you. And some of the musicians resigned after Moten discharged some other long-time members and found positions in other bands. The new formation looked like this. Trumpets, Lips Page, Dee Stewart and Joe Keith. Tenor sax, Ben Webster. Alto sax and clarinet, Eddie Barefield. Baritone sax, Jack Washington. Guitar and trombone, Eddie Durham. Trombone, Dan Minor. Bass, Walter Page. Guitar, Buster Berry. Drums, Willie Mac Washington. Piano, Count Basie and Benny Moten. Accordion, 
Buster Moulton. The band of 14 consisted of some of the best musicians of that time. But even though the band was so good, almost everywhere they played they fell flat on their face. Can you imagine that? The next tour was a torture and they just didn't go down well with the audience most of the times. I say most of the times, of course they had also some great gigs, but only every now and then. Like in Pearl Theatre in December 1932, where the doors of that theatre were let open to the public who came cramped into the theatre to hear this new sound, demanding seven encores on one night. Yeah, but mostly it was hard times. And during these rough times, the last recordings of the Benny Moten Kansas City Orchestra were made in December 1932. These sites include a number of tunes that would later become swing classics, as for example Toby, Lafayette or Moten Swing. <laughs> in the very beginning of this episode. And guess what? This was the song I originally wanted to present to you when I started to prepare this podcast episode. Yes, actually this episode here should be about Moten Swing. But when I had read into the story around Benny Moten and his orchestra, it was out of the question to go a little deeper into the history of the band and their special style that became known as the Kansas City style characterized by complex rhythms, carefully restrained drum beats, and especially riffs. Riffs referred to the practice of using rhythms to accompany the soloists, who became the main focus. This was a milestone in the history of jazz. Swing and bebop took over the musical ideas from this style. Let's listen to Lafayette once where we can hear this development the best, I think. There we can hear those crazy solos in the foreground, which are accompanied by some rhythmical riffs in the background, and it seems like they are cheering for the soloist. Yeah, and the rhythm section, guitar, bass, drums and piano, is the machine to keep the band going, and most important, 
swinging. So here is Lafayette from the Benny Moten Orchestra. on the internet, the story of the band comes to a very quick and abrupt end when in 1935 Benny Moten died during what should have been routine surgery to remove his tonsils. And Count Basie takes over the band. End of the story. But Count Basie himself tells a much longer story, but I want to keep it short. If you're interested in more, read Basie's autobiography by Albert Murray. It's terrific, I tell you. First of all, due to the bad situation the band was in, Benny Moten was dismissed as the leader and replaced by Count Basie. Basie himself had, as he said himself, no good feeling at all about this, because he appreciated and liked Benny Moten very much. But he had to bow to the will of the band and that's also exactly what Moten did. So Moten left and the band was named Count Basie and his Cherry Blossom Orchestra. A few band members went with Benny Moten and Count Basie's time as band leader was at first marked by constant changes in the band until, not long after, it gradually disbanded and only Basie and drummer Joe Jones remained. A few months later, the news emerged that Benny Moten started a new attempt to put a band together for a tour and Count Basie, as well as Joe Jones and some other especially new musicians were involved. Most of the previous band members had already found other engagements at this time. When the news of Benny Moten's death reached the band, they were shocked, of course. Rumor has it that Moten's death wasn't a medical malpractice, as it was officially told, but that he was killed on purpose. For whatever reason, I could not find out. But according to Basie, Moten and the operating doctor were very good friends, so he did not believe the rumors. Anyway, without Benny Moten as the band leader, the band was not the same anymore, and Count Basie left before it finally broke up a few weeks later. Kansas City nightlife declined rapidly after the fall of the Pendergast machine and the golden age of jazz in Kansas City ended in the 1940s. Jazz historian Nathan W. Pearson Jr. perhaps best captures the central importance of Benny Moten to this golden age of jazz. He says... Among Kansas City musicians, the city, the style, 
and the era of its flowering are virtually synonymous with the Benny Moten Orchestra. Oh, I'm so sorry to put you in that sad mood in the end. I hope the end phrases of Lafayette will take your mind off it and cheer you up again. listening to this podcast episode. I really, really hope you enjoyed it. If so, please follow me on Instagram at BugleCallRadio so we can get in contact. And if you have some spare bucks, support me with a donation. Click on Donate on my homepage www.buglecallradio.wordpress.com There you can find a one-time donation option over PayPal or, if you are a big fan and want to become a long-time supporter, you can join me on Patreon. Patreon is a great tool for artists to get regular financial support of fans and you yourself can choose how much you want to pay each time I create a new episode. You can find more information on my website and my Patreon page www.patreon.com slash buglecallradio buglecallradio in one word and it is absolutely not about me making any money with this podcast that would be a nice side effect but at the moment I'm only paying extra because I have to pay for the licenses of the songs you hear in the podcast so I'm allowed to use them for my project so if you really like my project and you want it to survive and continue, please support me. If only 200 people would pay 1 euro a month for every episode coming out, the existence of this podcast would be saved. Yes, those licenses aren't cheap, especially if you want the episodes to be available for more than only 2 or 3 months. It all adds up. If you can even spend more, the luckier you make me, because I can continue with my beloved project. If you have any questions, don't be afraid to contact me via my website or Instagram. Thank you for tuning in. Feel embraced, stay healthy, and speak to you soon. Yours, Karin.